I want to draw your attention to a passage in Jeremiah, just kind of like we did a couple of Sundays ago. We kind of had an overview of Isaiah. We're going to kind of do an overview on Jeremiah, uh, which for my little mind is, is not really an easy thing to do, so I don't know how well I'll do it. Jeremiah, believe it or not, is the longest book in the Bible. And there's a lot of times people are going to argue with you and say, well, no, Psalms is. No, it really isn't. Word for word, there's more in Jeremiah than there is in the Psalms. It's just that the Psalms have a lot more white space on their pages. But it really is true. It's, it's a lengthy book. There's so much in it. There's no way that we can cover it all. We're just going to look at a little bit of it. But we're going to start off by looking at Jeremiah chapter 1, reading from verse 1 through verse 10. <clears throat> The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, and until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And I said, Ah, oh, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over the nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to plant, to build and to plant give you a little Texas history lesson here. My great-grandfather on my mother's side was a man named John Hall Wilkins. And back, oh goodness, back before the war between the states, he and his, that the Wilkins clan moved from Georgia to Alabama and finally settled around Liberty City here in East Texas. Really, it was an area that was called Danville and some of you know where that is. Uh, at some point after my great-grandfather grew up, uh, he purchased or inherited about 200 acres of land in a place where you'd probably be familiar where it is. It bordered Daisy Bradford's property. Nice. But by the time old dad Joyner came into East Texas and struck black gold, my great-grandfather had sold his land, minerals and oil. You say, well, that was stupid. Well, he needed the money. He needed the money to pay his attorney for defending him in his murder trial. I think he drank up whatever money was left over from that. My great-grandfather had four sons. The youngest was my granddad. His name was Morris. He was a carpenter and a school bus driver. The next was Charlie. He was a farmer and a rancher. The next one was Lewis. Lewis became a Presbyterian minister and served in that way for a long, long time. He was a great man. The last was Emmett, and he became a Pentecostal minister of the old breed. I often wondered how those two got along with each other at Christmas. 
you know, Uncle Emmett was down on booze and cigarettes and all of that type of stuff. And my Uncle Lewis, being a Presbyterian, he liked to have a glass of wine every now and then, and he liked to smoke a pipe. So I don't know how they got along with each other. I never was there when they were all together. But, you know, here's an interesting thing about my Uncle Emmett, because he was a good man. And later in his life, he stated this. He said he was glad that he never inherited the earthly riches that should have been his and that could have been his. Because he said, if I had become rich, I might have forgotten about the Lord. I always appreciated that. By the way, my old great-grandpa, being the rogue that he was, he finally repented and he was born again and he began preaching the gospel that long he had sought to destroy. And he became a Baptist of the old school landmarkism. He was quite a character too, I'm sure. I never met him. You know, I have to agree though with my Uncle Emmett. Earthly riches have led a lot, many a man and woman down the wrong path. And before oil was discovered in East Texas, Kilgore, as you, many of you know, was about the size of Mount Enterprise. But when the boom came along, and it came with a boom, within two months, the population of Kilgore had boomed up to 10,000 people. Many of those folks were coming in to, to find a steady job in the oil field. Remember, it was the Great Depression, and there were some people up north of Texas that they were tired of eating possum belly and poke salad every day, and they wanted to get a steady income. But there are also thousands of people who came into Kilgore and the surrounding area, and they were after one thing, somebody else's money, the easy way. The city of, of Kilgore, as you've heard, it teemed with pimps and prostitutes and bootleggers and bathtub gin and crooks and killers, and something had to be done about it. And so two Texas Rangers were sent there. One of them was Captain Manuel Gonzalez and then Ranger J.P. Huddleston. They sent to they, sit, they were sent to Kilgore and they began taking all of the fun out of life for people who wanted money without working for it. And within just two weeks, over 300 people had been, uh, uh, had been arrested and incarcerated. There was also an unknown number of people whose next residence was Boot Hill. They never made it to being incarcerated. The story is, is that some of them tried to resist Ranger Gonzalez, which was never a good idea. But then again, the problem they had was this. They didn't have a jail that was big enough to hold 300 miscreants. And so what they did was this, was the First Baptist Church had abandoned its building because of all the vermin that had been brought in from some of these folks. And so they weren't meeting there anymore. So Ranger Gonzalez, as many of you have heard, he would round them up and they used the church as a place to keep prisoners. And they had them all chained together and uh, they lived happily ever after, I guess. Let me ask you something. If you were contacted by a church in, that, in those circumstances and they asked you to come and preach or they asked you to come and sing or lead the music or come and testify and give your testimony or work with the youth or teach a Sunday school class, if they asked you to do it, would you go? Yes? No? Maybe, depending upon the honorarium. <laughs> let's look at the life of Jeremiah because if you received a call like he did would you want to heed the summons 
or would you try to pull a Jonah and run off and look inside of a whale's mouth? Let's talk about it. Jeremiah was called to be a prophet when he was a young man. He called himself a youth, and that would probably mean somewhere between 20 and 30 years old. And he became, and he was called to be a prophet during the reign of Josiah, just as we read a while ago. Josiah was one of the better kings that ever ruled over Judah. He was a good man. He tried to bring about some reforms that were badly needed, and some were done, but not much. It was... Sin and, and horrible stuff had become so ingrained in their society and idolatry had been so ingrained in their society that even the reforms that he had begun to institute really weren't doing just a whole lot. According to the picture painted by Jeremiah, their religion was corrupt to the core. They embraced all kinds of idolatry. And despite having a true God who had revealed his greatness to them often, who was true to them always, who was willing to bless them, they preferred their homemade junk gods, deities of their own manufacture, which couldn't speak, they couldn't move, their idols were worthless, they couldn't uphold their worshipers. Instead, their worshipers had to hold them up and carry them places. Those idols that they bowed down before could do nothing for them. And the people of Judah, though, this is an interesting thing. They gave so much credit to their idols, but evidently they tried to cover their bets just in case their, their particular idol didn't work because Jeremiah pointed out to them that Judah had as many gods as they had cities. And he said, Jeremiah, and Jeremiah said that in Jerusalem they had as many altars to false gods as they had streets. And it's not just that. But what went on in their worship services would be rated triple X. Some of it even murder one. Still, the people of Judah felt that they were safe. Safe from all harm. They claimed that the, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. But in doing that, they were saying that the temple of the Lord was going to grant them safety. And what Jeremiah told them, he said, you have turned it into a den of thieves. Now, when he said that, he was not talking about a den where thieves go to relax and talk about the Cowboys football game. What he was talking about was a den where you would go to hide and hide from God. And it didn't work. The false prophets of Judah proclaimed lies, and their audience readily believed them. And God stated this about them. He said, and my people love it that way. There was no longer a bomb in Gilead to heal a troubled soul. There was an old divine from years ago that made some remarks about this. And if you don't mind, let me read you what he said in, in describing what went on and, and with the idolatry in that area. He said, Every high hill had its thick grove of green trees within whose shadow the idolatrous rites and abominable license of nature worship were freely practiced. The face of the country was thickly covered with temples erected for the worship of Baal and Astarte. <clears throat> the people were taught to consider vice as a part of their religion and to frequent houses dedicated to impurity. All kinds of evil thrived unchecked. Nothing was there to stop them. The poor people were plundered. The innocent were falsely accused. Wicked men lay in wait to catch men. Theft, 
murder, adultery, and idolatry like spores of corruption filled the fetid air and flourished on the tainted soil. But it was in the Jerusalem where these evils came to a head. The temple with so many sacred associations was the headquarter of Baal worship. Its courts, courts were desecrated by monstrous images and symbols and its precincts were the abode of infamous men and women. Below the temple battlements, deep down in the valley of Hinnom, scenes were constantly witnessed that recalled the darkest cruelties of heathendom. There was the high place of Tophet, which derived its name from the clamor of the drums that drowned out the cries of babies being thrown into a fire. It was an awful combination. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, was the cry of the heartless formalist, while below the shrine of such sins of devilry were rife. But if this was the time in which God tapped Jeremiah on the shoulder and he sent him on an assignment that promised to be far from a walk in the park, would you have wanted his job? Well, let's consider Jeremiah's calling. Now, normally I don't do this because I'm not smart enough, but you know, the big time preachers, they always have these sermons in their outlines, you know, start with the same letters and stuff like that. I hardly ever do that. And be honest, I preached this a long, long time ago, so I don't know if I stole this outline or I actually came up with it by myself, but this is it. First of all, think about God's plan for Jeremiah. Notice what God said, before you were formed in the womb, I knew you. And when you see this idea of God knowing you, or God knowing someone, it's not just God being aware of something that's going on. It's knowing you in a redemptive type of a way. You know, you read in this time about Jesus was talking about what it will be at the last day in which some people would come up and say, you know, we did all of these things for you, Lord. And Jesus said, I will tell them, depart from me, I never knew you. He's not saying, I don't know who you are. No, Jesus knew exactly who that person was, but he didn't have a relationship with him. And in a sense that it's hard for us to even imagine what it would be like, but to think of this is that God would say, before you were nothing, before when nobody knew that you would ever exist or that you would ever be born, I loved you. I had a plan for you. I had things set up for you. We've been waiting for you, so to speak. And so it, his, the Lord knew him, selected him, and his calling and vocations were not things that he aspired to do, but God appointed Jeremiah when Jeremiah was not interested in doing that. As a matter of fact, Jeremiah even protested to it, but God said, no, you are going to be a prophet, and not just any kind of a prophet, he was going to be a prophet to the nations. His message was going to be something that would go around throughout Judah, it would go into surrounding areas, and guess what? Right now it's on the other side of the world, and people are still preaching the message of Jeremiah and the grace of God in, that he preached about. He was to be a prophet to the nations, not just Judah, but he, Jeremiah was chosen not because of his age, his experience, or his eloquence. And that was a thing that he protested about. He just said, you know, I'm only a youth. Well, who cares? You know, he, like I said, he was probably somewhere between 20 and 30 years old. Maybe he didn't have the wisdom of age, but God was going to take care of that. He said, you know, I don't know how to speak. I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not an eloquent speaker. 
We, heard, we, we know that there was someone else that said something like that centuries before Jeremiah, and that was Moses. He said, I, I don't know how to speak very well. I had a friend in seminary. Her name was Stacy Cowan. And uh, Stacy and I had gone to college together. We also uh, carpooled together, I remember, one, one or two semesters. And uh, Stacy had a, a problem with stuttering. If he got kind of nervous, he, he would, would stutter a lot. And we were driving down the road, we were talking about something, and he said, you know, Joe, he said, there was someone that told me I, I, I needed to pray to be able to preach with eloquence. He said, I don't want to preach with eloquence. I want to preach with power. And I never could forget that. I lost track of Stacy. He ended up going into the army and became a chaplain, and I'm sure he's retired by now. I'd like to see him again. But you know, that is the thing that's so important. What is important in serving God is not how great you think you are or how talented everyone thinks you are. It's if you're in God's hands and you're letting Him use you and you go where he tells you to go and you do what he tells you to do. That's where the power is. I want to read to you from 1 Corinthians a thing that Paul has to say about that. The Apostle Paul makes this remark in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, starting with verse 26. The Apostle Paul writes this. He said, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. If you do anything and it touches people's lives, remember that it was not really because of you. It was because of the God who called you and enabled you to do that. Another thing we see is about God's presence. Now, whenever you have someone say, I have something for you to do, but don't be afraid, that means that there's going to be a reason to be afraid. And that was what he told him. He said, don't be afraid, meaning this. This mission was going to be dangerous. And, uh, and, and, it, and, and Jeremiah needed someone to give him comfort. He also needed someone to give him encouragement. You know, um, Jeremiah, as far as we know, had only about two people that followed him. One of them was an Ethiopian eunuch who got Jeremiah out of a cistern where he'd been left to die. And then there was also Baruch, who was his scribe. We really don't know that anyone else paid that much attention to what Jeremiah had to say. And I'm going to tell you something. If you proclaim God's Word for 40 years and there's no one that wants to follow the teachings of God, it can be pretty disheartening. You know, there's going to be times that he needed encouragement and God was going to be his encouragement. Understand this, what we should seek is the approval of God more than the approval of anybody else. And then there was another thing. How was he going not to be afraid? How, what was going to keep him from being afraid? 
You know, what time I am afraid, I will trust in Him. Whenever we realize that God is the one who is with us, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And when we realize that, we realize that there's not that much to be afraid of anymore. Fear God and don't worry about anyone else or anything else. And that was what he told Jeremiah to do. Don't be afraid. Just do what I'm telling you to do. And then there was God's preparation. God, it says Jeremiah says that he took this, he, he put out his hand and he touched my mouth and he said, I put my words in your mouth. In other words, God was the one who prepared him. His, in, his enablement uh, as well as his encouragement would come from God. Whatever he was going to accomplish, it would be attributed to God's inner working. Just as Paul said, and we even read that earlier in the service, says, I can do all things through, strength, through Christ which strengtheneth me. And so we know that what we have to do is if we want to be prepared to do that, we just call upon Christ. We depend upon Him. We depend upon His strength. He is the one who is going to make your work effective. In verse 19, I didn't read, but it's God's path. And this is what it says here. It talks about what God tells him. He says, tells Jeremiah, he says, These people will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you. For once again, I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. Meaning by this, this job wasn't going to be easy. And God never told him it was going to be easy. As a matter of fact, he told him it was going to be hard. And Jeremiah, there were times that Jeremiah was about ready to throw down his shovel. If you read in chapter 20 of Jeremiah, you read a long series of moaning and groaning. At one point, he was bold enough to say, God, you deceived me and I was deceived. You tricked me. This is not what I was thinking about doing. It sounds like some of the stuff that you read in Job where he, he basically shakes his finger at God and says, this isn't fair and this shouldn't be happening to me. Have you ever felt like saying that to God? I've been scared to, but I sure have felt like it. And I guess that happens with all of us when we're trying to do what we think God wants us to do. There's going to be times that's disappointing. I don't think I have ever known well any person in pastoral ministry that hasn't had some time or another when he just wanted to grab his Bible and his best suit and walk out the door and never come back. I remember one church where I served, and I mean, it was tough and it was hard. I loved a lot of the people there, but it was just like preaching to a steel wall at times and I really was starting to make plans to pack up and leave and find some kind of a job where it wouldn't be so stressful because as a matter of fact even my wife said this is ruining your health and and to tell you the truth I darn near died one night but anyway that's another story you know and that was what he said but let me tell you something during times in which you feel like that you just can't hold anymore and you have to let off steam to somebody, the best one to talk to is God. Let me tell you something. His shoulders are big enough to handle it. He'll listen. 
He will understand you better than anybody else will. And you know what? You read Jeremiah chapter 20 and you see that's exactly what Jeremiah did. But you know, everything got brighter for him, it seems. And God will listen, but God will sustain us during those times. Listen to what Paul says about this serving. Paul, the Apostle Paul never said that following Christ was going to be easy. He talks about some of the people that were his enemies in the gospel who claimed to be so superior to him. And he said this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He said, are they Hebrews? Well, so am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman. But with, I, am one, I, am, I am a better one with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is daily the pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? He knew what it was like. And was it easy being an apostle? No. Never was. It never was meant to be. Jesus didn't invite his first apostles to follow him and say, listen, I'm going to show you the time of your life. We're going to go to Disney World every day. That was not what it was about. Never has been. Remember this. We live in a world that crucified Jesus. And if he were to come back and they could get their hands on him, they would do it again. And that's the Savior that we follow. We shouldn't expect it any easier. You know, whatever we can do, folks... And whatever we can do well is because of God's enablement. We must rely on Him and not on, our, not on our own strength. So I guess the question that we should ask ourselves is, what are you doing in the name of the Lord? Are you depending upon Him? You'll be glad if you would do that. Let's pray together. Now, our Lord, we thank You for Your Word that teaches us about You, about Your ways, and about the ways that we should go. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us for things that we face in the future. We do not know what tomorrow may hold. We don't know what this afternoon may hold. But Lord, we are going to trust you. Take care of us, Lord. Lead us, guide us, and thank you for your mercy. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.